Matthew 6, 16 through 24. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness! No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Great to see all of you this morning. My name's Eric, and I'm the pastor here at Trinity. We are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And as you can see up on the screen, the title and the theme of our series has been Flourish. We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount and how it's Jesus' manifesto, it's his description of what this life of human flourishing looks like, how we can experience that, and how we can be people who live to help other people flourish. So that's been the theme we've been looking at. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he's kind of doing two things. He's showing us what the real thing is, real human flourishing. And he's also exposing the counterfeits, counterfeit versions of human flourishing. So a counterfeit, a counterfeit is only really a counterfeit if it actually really looks like the real thing. It's hard to tell the difference. We were down in Mexico a couple weeks ago, just down in Ensenada. If you've ever gone shopping, I don't know how many of you have gone shopping down in Mexico, a lot of these markets and bazaars, you'll see a lot of counterfeit <laughs> items for sale. So you can buy jerseys, soccer jerseys, and all kinds of stuff. We went to a certain place where there were these stores with all kinds of designer purses. So they had Dooney and Burke and Michael Kors and all. I know my purse brands, right? Yeah. And Coach. And I was like, Amelia, you need a new purse. Why don't you go get one of those? She's like, no, thank you. But on the surface, you can't really tell the difference. It looks exactly the same as the real thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, I'm here to show you with my teaching and my life and eventually my death what real human flourishing looks like and where to find it. And so the Sermon on the Mount is a place for us to return to again and again as we're learning to tell the difference between counterfeits and the real thing. We look to the Sermon on the Mount. It's the real thing. It, it defies many of our expectations. It's not what we would have thought. But Jesus says this is the real deal. In this section of the Sermon on the Mount, what we just read, Jesus is warning of what we might call the two main counterfeit versions of the flourishing and blessed life. 
These two versions are things we create, we're drawn to, really across culture, any culture, across time, um, any time. In Jesus' time, these were the two main counterfeits. You might call them the religious counterfeit and the irreligious counterfeit. In chapter 6, if you have your Bible, you can kind of peek around at chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Jesus is saying, beware of the religious counterfeit to the flourishing life. He says, beware hypocrisy of faking it, of using religion as a mask, of doing all of these religious things as if you're performing on a stage. It might look like a flourishing life on the outside, doing good works, having a devotional life, attending church all the time, being very active in the church. It might look like a flourishing life on the outside, but if it's done for the approval of others, if it's done to earn God's approval, he says it's not the real thing. Here, in verses 19 through 24 that we just heard read, he's making a transition. 6, 1 through 18, the religious counterfeit. 6, 19 through 24, Jesus is looking at the alternative counterfeit. We could call it the irreligious counterfeit. This is the materialistic counterfeit. Materialism, we could define it as when we look to wealth and possessions to provide us with status and security and satisfaction in life, that that is the flourishing life. It might look like, Jesus said, the flourishing life on the outside, but it's not the real thing. So this morning, what I want to look at is the overlap of this transition, materialism and fasting. We're going to look at it in four points. First, the problems of materialism. Second, everybody else's problem. Third, we'll look at fasting. And fourth, we'll look at feasting. So look again at 19 through 24. Here Jesus is exposing materialism as a counterfeit vision of the flourishing and blessed life. And first he wants to see, he wants us to see that materialism is in competition. It's a rival vision. It's a rival version of the blessed life. And he also wants to see, he wants us to see and show us the problems the consequences of living for this rival vision. So he's doing this through two uh, contrasts, three sets of two contrasts, two types of treasure, two types of eyes, and two types of masters. Each of these contrasts highlights a different problem, he says, with living the materialistic life, this counterfeit vision of the flourishing life. Problem number one, he says, is it tricks us. Verses 19 through 20. I want to read those again. 19 through 20, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. When we live to accumulate earthly treasure, what we pursue, the things that we think we have to have to give us status, to give us security, to give us satisfaction in life. It works for a little while and then it fades and it leaves us empty. These things are so easily taken away from us. No matter how much treasure we lay up, no, how, no matter how much treasure we accumulate, Jesus is saying it's never enough. You may have heard this quotation before, but the famous a wealthy millionaire at the time, uh, the r- world's richest man in the 
early 1900s, John Rockefeller, he was once asked, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. World's richest man. The trick of materialism is that it lures us into investing, into stockpiling things that don't last, that are never enough. Treasures on earth fade. Jesus says treasures in heaven are lasting. Secondly, the second problem is that it blinds us. If you look at verses 22 and 23, they're pretty enigmatic. What is Jesus talking about this eye? And these, these are hard verses to interpret. But you see that Jesus is comparing two types of eyes. There's the good eye, which means your whole body is full of light. And then if you have a bad eye, your whole body is plunged into darkness. Now, if we take it out of context, it's really hard to figure out what, is Jesus, what are these eyes. But if we put it back in its context here, sandwiched between two passages on materialism, we see that the eye here represents our life's focus, the goals and the vision that we have in our lives, the things that our eyes are set on. And Jesus is saying two things about this. When our focus on life is accumulating, on acquiring, it doesn't just affect a part of our life. It doesn't just affect a part of our soul. It affects everything about our lives. And then he says when our focus and vision of life is is success or affluence, that the effect that this has on us is that it blinds us to the impact it's having on our lives. We can't see it because everything is cloaked in darkness. We don't know how much it's blinding us. So it tricks us, it blinds us. Thirdly, he says it enslaves us. In verse 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. So materialism, Jesus is saying, is not just one among many counterfeit visions of the flourishing life. He says it's so powerful, it's so strong, it's so controlling that we need to think of it as an alternate deity. It's something that we treat as God in our lives, a substitute God. And it's important here to make a a disclaimer that Jesus' teaching and the Bible's teaching is not that money, possessions, and wealth are inherently wrong, evil, or bad. These are good things created by God, given to us to enjoy and to use to serve others. But when we deify money, when it becomes an idol that we worship, materialism with a capital M, like all other gods, there is a relationship of service and reward. If you serve me, if you do this for me, this is the reward that you will receive. Materialism is such a powerful God because of the great rewards, the, the great rewards that we look to it in order to receive if we just serve enough if we just try hard enough, if we faithfully give ourselves to it. We say, security, if I earn enough money, I will have security. If I have enough saved and invested, then I will feel safe and I will have peace. With status, we say to ourselves, if I'm just successful enough, then I will matter and I will be someone. Or satisfaction, If I just get a little more, I'm not talking about extravagance. If I just get a little more, I'll have the joys in life that I'm seeking. I'll be satisfied and content. When we look to money or wealth or possessions to deliver those things to us, we become mastered by it, Jesus says. 
we become enslaved. So these are the problems with materialism. It tricks us, it blinds us, and it can enslave us. That's point one. Now, most of us, if we are either convinced with regard to Jesus and Christianity, we are followers of Jesus, or if we're not, and we're here and we're exploring, we have some questions, we have some reservations about Jesus. At this point, I think we're all saying, yes, I'm with you, Jesus. I think I I see that there's value into this warning that you are giving us. In our culture, we say it is too materialistic, broad agreement, no matter what faith or belief system we come from. Yeah, we live in a materialistic age and culture. There are serious problems and effects to this as well. We could say, yes, I agree with that. It doesn't deliver. There's more to life than materialism. But at the same time, we might say, I agree with all that. The vast majority of us think, but it's not really a big problem for me. I can see it happening in the lives of other people. It's happening out there, out there, but it's just kind of a minor issue, a minor thing for me. This is true for me. This is true for my first reading of this text. I wasn't even planning on preaching this message. I thought, well, let's talk about fasting and we'll skip over and we'll move to anxiety. But then I felt like I needed to ask myself a question. And that is, why is it so easy for me to excuse myself from what Jesus says here in 19 through 24? And I was reading what... Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor during the time of World War II, what he said about this in his book called The Cost of Discipleship. So he was a German pastor of World War II. He was a part of what was called the Confessing Church. This church took a stand against Nazism, and eventually Bonhoeffer lost his life because of that. So I'm reading this and thinking, this man has some credibility when it comes to choosing a path in life that doesn't give him the materialistic comforts and status that we so desperately seek. And what he says on on the chapter, on this passage, is he says the heart of what Jesus is saying here is that there is no genuine life of discipleship. There's no genuine Christianity as long as we make it a Jesus and proposition. He says it, it can't be Jesus and our religious works. It can't be Jesus and the law. And he says it can't be Jesus and the world. We could imagine him saying it can't be Jesus and the American dream. This was convicting to me. And I think especially convicting to us who live in Orange County and Southern California. Because I think this this way of living, this and life, is so embedded into how we do life in Orange County. Why do we live here? We live in Orange County because it has so many options. It gives us so much access to the ands. Say, I want to pursue a successful career. L.A. is close by. I can commute. There's all kinds of jobs and opportunities. I can have that. And I want to live in Orange County because it's a good place to raise a family, access to education, activities for my kids. And it's a place to enjoy the good things in life. We have the beach and the mountains and shopping and entertainment 
and all kinds of food from all over the world. And churches, you have mega churches, medium churches, and mini churches. You get to take your pick of which you want to be a part of. And we live in this culture of the and, we wonder, Jesus, is it really an either or? Can it be a both and? Can it be some treasures on earth and some in heaven? Can it be some of my life goals are focused on the good things in life and my spiritual life? Can it be that sometimes we just have to serve mammon to get ahead, but mainly serving God? Jesus' point here is that his version of the flourishing life and the version offered by materialism are incompatible. It's an either-or. And he puts it so starkly, it's so challenging. He says, you will either love one and you will hate the other. You will serve and be devoted to one and you will despise the other. No middle ground. Not only do these comparisons in 19 through 24 show us the problems with materialism, they do start to hit home as we spend time with them. There's a couple questions that I think emerge out of this. One... How do we know if we're struggling with this? How do we see this in our own lives? The question we can ask ourselves is, what am I accumulating? So we just moved here about one, one, day, a, one day from now, a year ago, t- tomorrow. <laughs> How do I say that? Tomorrow will be a year ago. That's it. July 31st, we moved. And when we moved, like is often the case for many of us, we were in great shock as, as to how much we accumulated in our old house. Like, where did all this stuff come from? How do we have all this stuff? But we also had the great blessing of purging. Every time you move, you get to purge and say, let's get rid of all this stuff. We've accumulated. We don't need it anymore. And the point is, when you're, when you're in one place for a long time, is that you just start accumulating stuff and you don't realize it. You rarely stop and say, let's pause, let's stop, and let's ask ourselves, what are we accumulating here that we either need or need to get rid of. Jesus is saying it's this way with every human life, especially those of us who have resources. If we don't ask ourselves, what am I accumulating, then we won't really know where our heart truly is, what we really love. It's not about just time and money spent in church activities versus secular activities. It cuts across all those things. Imagine if you could with me two boxes. We're talking about moving here. If there are two boxes in your life, box number one contains everything that I've accumulated that will give me status, that gives me security, that I think will give me satisfaction. You could see things in there like these are my degrees These are my titles. These are my investments. These are my possessions. These are my accomplishments in box number one. And in box number two, we have everything we've accumulated when it comes to generosity, relationships healed by forgiveness, true friendships, the things you've given away, your prayer life, what you've learned about Scripture, the spiritual fruit in your life, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, kindness, self-control, box number two. The question, which I was wrestling with this week, is this. 
which would devastate me more and crush me more if I went to the box and realized, empty, I have to start all over. Box one or box two? Another question. What am I accumulating, but also what am I sacrificing? In verses 22 through 24, uh, Jesus is saying there's two eyes that we can have. Only one thing can be our ultimate goal. With two masters, we can only have one real master. One thing we ultimately serve. And the way that we can tell what our goal is, what our real master is, is what we are willing to sacrifice for. Anytime we have a goal, an important goal in life, we're willing to make sacrifices to get to that goal. If your goal is getting a degree in college, succeeding in your profession, there's a lot of sacrifice. You work insane hours. You have to sacrifice sleep and sometimes your well-being to get that. If your goal is to be a professional athlete, sacrifice certain foods. You sacrifice your time to spend your life in training and honing your skill and your craft. We are all pursuing some goal. We're all making sacrifices. And Jesus says, you know, you are not mastered by materialism when you sacrifice what materialism can give you out of your love for God and His kingdom. That every truly flourishing life will have moments of sacrifice where we give up the promises of materialism in order to follow Jesus. Later in Matthew, Jesus had a conversation with a person about this very issue. He's known as the rich young ruler. He was a man who lived an extremely focused life. A very good and moral life, a successful life, but he was still empty, he was still searching. And he came to Jesus and he said, basically, what am I missing here? And Jesus said to him, Matthew 19, 21, if you want to be perfect, we could translate that whole. If you want to be whole, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. When the young man heard this, it says, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We know that we have our own problem with materialism. If we can't point to ways we're regularly giving up the status, the security, the satisfaction of materialism in order to pursue wholeness with Jesus. It's very convicting and challenging for me. These are the problems of materialism, and these are the ways that we see that problem at work in our own lives. How do we address it? The Bible has a lot to say about this, but here in the Sermon on the Mount, I want to focus on the connection between verses 16 through 18, what came right before this, and 19 through 24, the connection between fasting and materialism. One of my summer reading books is a book called you Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. He's a teacher at Calvin uh, College. He makes a really compelling point on this topic, and I want to share what he says. He says, how do we learn to be consumerists? Not because someone comes along and offers an argument for why stuff will make me happy. I don't think my way into consumerism. Rather, I'm covertly conscripted into a way of life because I've been formed by cultural practices that are nothing less than secular liturgies. My loves have been automated by rituals I didn't even realize were liturgies. So Smith is saying this is not an argument that we buy into 
to live into this vision for the flourishing life of materialism. Instead, it's rituals, it's practices. We become covertly affected, impacted, and buy into this without even realizing it. The rituals of materialism, like advertising everywhere, like the habits of our shopping, like a cultural calendar organized around consuming, like a daily market watch. All these things are immersions in rituals that form our loves and draw our hearts away. So in order to say no to materialism, to mammon, we don't just need an argument, a good argument as to what are the problems? Why shouldn't I live this way? We need a counter-liturgy. In other words, we need practices that helps, help us see and set us free from the grip of the materialistic vision. And one of these practices is fasting. Verses 16 through 18, Jesus says, Fasting is not about putting on a show for others or for God to show them how much we're willing to suffer. The main purposes of fasting are this, grieving and mourning over personal sin and communal idolatry, repentance, and seasons of discernment as we're seeking God's guidance. And when it comes to materialism, all of those things are so desperately needed in our time, in our lives, in our culture. Two things that the practice of fasting can do for us. One, fasting can be our practice at seeing the needs of other people. In Isaiah 58, the prophet Isaiah is addressing empty fasting versus fasting that actually makes a difference. And I want to read to you from Isaiah 58. He says this, Is not this the fast that I choose, this is God speaking, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? when you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Materialism blinds us to the injustice, the the oppression that is caused by our consumerism. It focuses us so much on what we want and what we think we need that we're blind to the needs of other people and how those needs could be met with our resources. When we fast, when we choose intentionally to experience hunger, when we fast from food, space is opened up in our hearts to remember that some people in our world are hungry not by choice, that some people don't have their basic needs met. So fasting is practice. It's practice for us so that we can actually see the needs of others. Fasting is also practice at saying no. Because materialism trains us to say yes to all our desires, to all our wants. Though Jesus is mainly here talking about fasting from food or drink, I think it's appropriate for us to expand the practice of fasting into other areas. Fasting is training our wills and our hearts to say no to all kinds of good and legitimate things in order that our hearts would be trained to love a greater good. So let's talk about fasting from food first. Fasting from food, whenever, whenever I fast, I don't fast often. Often during Lent, I fast one meal um, during, during the week. 
in Lent. And I found that even that small practice of fasting is so illuminating of the state of my heart, how hard it is for me to say no, because when I'm fasting and it hits lunchtime, all I can think about is a California burrito. And I'm just like, maybe I should just switch my day to tomorrow, because I, gosh, I have to have the California burrito. And I look at my soul and I'm like, how hard is it for me to do this, to say no to something, a lesser good for a greater good? Fasting is that kind of training from food. Fasting also can be, especially in our time and in our culture, a fasting from media and technology. Jesus says it is our eye that is the lamp of the body. And in a visual culture, in a culture so saturated with advertising, with commercials, everywhere we go, in the digital world or in the actual world. We are being told you don't have enough. It's not good enough. You need bigger. You need better. You need more. And so regular fasting from technology can train us to say no. Lastly, especially for where we live in Orange County, this and life culture, fasting sometimes from our overscheduled and overcommitted lives that opens up space trains us to say no, saying no to constantly filling our schedules, saying no to constantly filling our kids' schedules, saying no to always saying yes. Sometimes we need to fast so we can learn to say no, so we can practice. Final point, feasting. Though it might seem contradictory, another counter-liturgy, another counter-practice that is necessary to undermine the power of materialism in our lives is the practice of feasting. Not just any feasting, but what I would call gospel feasting, which teaches us to say yes to something better than materialism. I want to share another quote from a really important article by Walter Brueggemann called The Liturgy of Abundance and the Myth of Scarcity. Here's what he said about Jesus' ministry. Jesus demonstrated that the world is filled with abundance and freighted with generosity. If bread is broken and shared, there's enough for all. Jesus is engaged in the sacramental, subversive reordering of public reality. That's a mouthful, but I love that part. The closer we stay to Jesus, the more we bring a new economy of abundance to the world. A few chapters after the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 9, this topic of fasting, it comes up again in the Gospel of Matthew. It's a story right after, a story which was very dear to the author's heart, Matthew. In chapter 9, he tells a part of his own story of how he met Jesus. He was a tax collector, and Jesus came into his place of business, kind of barged in, and said, follow me. And Matthew was like, yes. And the next thing they did was right there, Matthew invited all of his friends over, his fellow tax collectors and other people, and they had a feast. And when they did, the religious leaders were complaining. They said to Jesus' followers, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is Jesus hanging out with these materialistic sellouts? 
tax collectors. They're greedy. They live for money. That's all they care about. Why is he hanging out with these kinds of people? And Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a physician, but the sick. So feasting with Jesus is somehow medicine that heals us from the sickness of materialism. It was for Matthew, the one who wrote this gospel. Just a few verses later, Jesus is asked another question, another criticism. This time, some of John the Baptist's disciples come and say, why don't you and your disciples fast? We are fasting all the time. How come you guys aren't fasting? All you're doing is feasting. Jesus says to him, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast then. Jesus says, as long as I am here, it is feasting time. All of Jesus' meals, his feasts, if you read the Gospels, all of his feasts in his life were these sacramental, subversive reorderings of public reality. In other words, they were living pictures of what the world would look like free from the idols of materialism and instead ordered by grace and the love of God. All of our feasting, I think, can be an experience of this thankfulness, this hospitality and grace, but in particular, this feast that we're about to celebrate this morning. This feast is a gospel feast. I think it's why Jesus left us with one thing. He said, there's this one thing that you have to do repeatedly, this one practice, and that is you need to feast together. You need to celebrate the feast of the Lord's Supper in order to say yes to what Jesus offers us in the gospel. In coming to the feast of the Lord's Supper, we say something is better than materialism, and we say yes. That is what I need. That is what I want. We say yes to a status that cannot be earned. We say yes to a security that cannot be lost. We say yes to a satisfaction that can't be bought. In this feast, there is a status that we cannot earn. Can you imagine if we... We have two lines that come down here in the center aisle for communion. Can you imagine if we structured that like the bank lines? I was just in the bank yesterday, VIP line. If you're wealthy, you don't have to wait. Can you imagine if we structured it like the airlines, first class, second class, etc.? Or how they structure it at Disneyland where there's a secret VIP back door where people get to get in and skip all the lines. There's not two lines. There's not four lines here. There's one line. It doesn't matter what's on your resume. It doesn't matter what's in your bank account. We all are equally in need of a status that we can't earn. That humbles us. Jesus says, leave all that behind. But it exalts us at the same time. There's a security that can't be lost. Our security in life is not based on what we have or what we do. It's based on the love of God for us in Jesus. In Romans 8, 32 Paul says, if God has given us his son, if he did not spare his very best gift, will he not graciously give us all things that we need? And this feast also reminds us that what we most deeply hunger for and long for and thirst for is not anything that
that materialism can give. But it is God himself. And in this meal, because of the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ shed for us, we get God. At the cross, Jesus said no to holding on to his status, to his own security, to his own satisfaction, in order that we might be able to say yes to something better than materialism. Let's pray. Jesus, these words are challenging. We want to evade them, find our way around them. And yet, as we sit with them, we realize the power of this counterfeit vision of the flourishing life. I pray this morning that you would meet us in this feast, that we would experience as we share this meal together, what it means to say yes to the status as the beloved sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, creator of all things, that we would be reminded of where our security lies and we would have the satisfaction that you would meet us as we come by faith of enjoying you the one who has broken the barrier of our great sin, you have burst it wide open that we might find our way back. And may we come, may we come back, may we turn back by faith. We thank you. We pray in your name. Amen.